After 30 years on the Supreme Court, Justice Anthony Kennedy stepped down this past summer. And in a matter of days, as we shoot this show, the Senate will begin confirmation hearings for the man President Trump has nominated to succeed him, Judge Brett Kavanaugh. Today on Uncommon Knowledge, a student of the Constitution and of American politics will tell us what it all means. John Yu on Uncommon Knowledge now. Welcome to Uncommon Knowledge. I'm Peter Robinson. John Yu is a professor of law at the University of California at Berkeley and a visiting fellow here at the Hoover Institution at Stanford. From 2001 to 2003, he served as Deputy Assistant Attorney General at the Justice Department's Office of Legal Counsel. Professor Yu is the author of many books, including most recently, Striking Power, How Cyber, Robots, and Space Weapons Change the Rules for War. Professor Yu appears often on Fox News, and he is also the co-star with Richard Epstein and Troy Senek of the popular podcast, Law Talk. John Yu, welcome back to this show. Thanks, Peter. John, you are an alumnus of Yale Law School. Don't tell anybody. It's too late. <laughs> it's too late. Listen to this, which comes from an open letter from Yale Law students, alumni, and educators regarding Brett Kavanaugh also a graduate of Yale Law School and a friend of yours mm -hmm. at Yale Law School. Mm -hmm. Here's the quotation. We see in Judge Kavanaugh an intellectually and morally bankrupt ideologue intent on rolling back our rights. People will die if he is confirmed. Close quote. John? <laughs> it's ridiculous. People will die if he's not confirmed, too. I mean, this is, uh, I feel really bad for the faculty. A couple hundred uh, signatures. Oh, uh, this is embarrassing that uh, I went to Yale Law School and Brett went to Yale Law School, and this is the kind of legal writing. I would give it an F. Okay, uh, so this, does, this doesn't even rise to the level of needing to be refuted. This is ridiculous on the face of it? Just the idea that you, ha you can't confirm someone because people will die. We're all going to die. I mean, there's... I, th I think what <laughs> yeah. they're... Yeah, it's not clear it because the thing is so badly written, <laughs> yeah. frankly. But a few paragraphs earlier up, they were talking about abortion. Hmm. And I think the suggestion is uh, sort of what Teddy Kennedy argued about Judge Bork, yeah. that he would return to the America of back alley abortions. I think what they're, yeah. they're getting at with that line is that Judge Kavanaugh might overturn Roe. Yeah. So actually, this, we'll is, a that, good, this go is a good way to understand Brett Kavanaugh or any conservative who went to Yale Law School, that's the kind of environment, if you're a conservative, you are surrounded with all the time. So if you're a conservative, you make it through there, like uh, Sam Alito or uh, Justice Clarence Thomas, and now I hope Brett Kavanaugh, you're going to be really sure about your conservative beliefs because you get pounded on every day by people who not only accusing you of killing people, but also do it in the most badly written English that you can imagine. <laughs> all right. Um, We'll come back to Judge Kavanaugh. Judge Kavanaugh will make up 85% of our conversation, but first I'd like a, at least a brief assessment of Justice Anthony Kennedy. Nominated by Ronald Reagan, confirmed by a Senate vote of 97 to zero, and Justice Kennedy served on the high court for just over three decades. Two assessments. Editorial in the Wall Street Journal, quote, Justice Kennedy has provided the fifth crucial vote in numerous cases, defending free speech and religious liberty, gun rights, and property rights, close quote. Now, here's an editorial in National Review. 
no justice was less willing to tie himself down to clear rules or a legal philosophy. The trademark of a Kennedy opinion was a verbal effusion that gestured toward profundity without overcoming confusion. In fact, that editorial was carried the headline, Good Riddance to Justice Kennedy. <laughs> And what is John Hughes? Well, how do we, how do we evaluate Justice Kennedy? <laughs> I think I read both pieces when they came out. I tend to agree more with the National Review view. I'm not sure the Wall Street Journal would disagree. I don't necessarily think they're in conflict there, mostly because I hope to get published in one of them again in the future. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think that the Wall Street uh, Journal is really looking at the bottom line outcomes. Where did Kennedy vote? And I think the National Review is looking at the deeper themes and the way he thought. And, I think many conservatives, including myself, were very disappointed in Justice Kennedy because he did tend, I think, to try to vote the way he felt the American people or American society wanted to go rather than more like a Scalia or a Thomas sticking to what the framers of the Constitution understood the document to mean when they ratified it. So some cases that the Wall Street Journal there didn't mention, abortion rights and gay rights, particularly Obergefell. I think Obergefell decided what 18 months ago now. It's the gay rights, the uh, gay marriage, gay marriage uh, case. Excuse me, gay marriage. Yeah. Yes, and it's uh, but Justice Kennedy, if if you're going to look at his legacy, in addition to free speech, I think his greatest legacy has been gay rights. He authored three opinions actually with Obergefell, the right to gay marriage, being Lawrence, the pinnacle. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Lawrence, and then an earlier case called Romer. Hey, you, did you go to law school, Peter? Because you're sure acting like Yale. it. Not to Yale. <laughs> no, you, 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 you could graduate from Yale with right, right now because you mentioned two cases correctly. <laughs> so, so explain that. So I think Justice Kennedy uh, created a right which the framers almost certainly didn't think was there and really pitched his opinion to the idea that there are these evolving norms in society that have to be given respect by the court. Uh, this runs quite counter to the way conservatives, including your former boss, President Reagan, said he wanted to do when he was appointing new justices to the Supreme Court, was to get them to stick to the constitutional text that was understood, not because gays shouldn't have rights, but it's because we want the legislatures to decide, we want Congress and the state legislatures to decide that question. I think Justice Kennedy ultimately, and this goes beyond what mm -hmm. the Journal and the National Review said, if he really stood for anything more than just how he came out on single issues, he stood for judicial supremacy. He stood for the idea that judges get what the I say last goes. word. Yeah, I get the last say on what the Constitution means. And because now so many of our societal questions, religion, race, gay marriage, guns, all get sucked into the Supreme Court now, that made Justice Kennedy essentially in many, on many questions more powerful than the president and certainly more powerful than any single member of Congress in deciding the rules that you and I have to live under. Uh, you're a law school professor. Grade him. A, B, C, D, E, F. You know, we had the same, I think we had the same conversation with Justice O'Connor retired too. And I think they're both going to pass into history as average justices. I think, uh, you know, we're, we'll look at the outcome of their votes, but I don't think we're going to remember them for any uh, theories, themes. So think of Scalia is the exact reverse. Scalia didn't win very often, actually. We don't think about, oh, how did he vote in this case? How did we vote in that case? We remember him because of the arguments and the themes to his jurisprudence. And because he wrote so brilliantly and argued so cogently, I'm saying this as if I'm affirming or asserting it, but this is in the form of a question, that he actually, actually oh, so let me ask you this. You once said to me, this is years ago, and I'm not even sure you remember it, and I don't think I've ever quoted it back to you. 
But you once said to me something like, before Antonin Scalia was appointed to the Supreme Court, original, originalism, his, his fundamental view of the Constitution was considered laughable mm -hmm. at elite law schools, yeah. such as Yale. Yep. By the time Antonin Scalia died, if your law school didn't have two or three or four important originalists on the faculty, your law school was laughable. And so, so the, the question would be, a decade from now, will any kids at Yale Law School, your alma mater, we keep going back to Yale, read Kennedy decisions and say, he was right, or I want to be able to reason the way he reasoned. Or won't they even read his decisions? That's the problem. I don't think there was any Kennedy school of thought, just the way there was yeah. no O'Connor school of thought. Uh, they bounced around from issue to issue, just as Kennedy changed his method from issue to issue, case to case. Some cases he was an originalist. Some cases like gay marriage, he was trying to get the pulse of the American people. Uh, there was no uh, school of thought. And so that's why I think in the end, that's why he'll pass into history more sort of an average justice at best. All right. What's at stake now on the court? Uh, John Yu writing a National Review. With a fifth conservative justice, the last remaining branch of the federal government will have slipped away from liberal hands. And two of the four liberal justices now on the court are in their 80s. Uh, justice Ginsburg and Justice Breyer. Mm -hmm. For the first time in about eight decades, the country may have a truly conservative Supreme Court, close quote. Now, the first thing I want to do is establish what you mean by truly conservative. I had to look it up. Eight decades <laughs> ago, the Chief Justice was Charles Evans Hughes. Right. And I don't have too much of a feel for the Hughes Court. A few years before, you've got Chief Justice William Howard Taft. I think what you're arguing is this is all pre-New Deal jurisprudence. Yes. So what do you mean by, you tell yes. me, you tell me. No, so I think uh, if you really want to define what is a conservative court, it's a, a court that thinks its main job is not to solve society's problems, not to articulate the norms of the American people, uh, not to get involved all the time in every social dispute, even between the president and Congress, not to have the last say on everything, but a court that keeps its role limited to enforcing the meaning of the Constitution as originally understood in real cases and controversies that are between litigants. And so I don't think we've really had a conservative court since before FD, since FDR really pretty much destroyed the court during its confrontation during the New Deal. And so since, since that time, think of the Warren Court, even the Berger Court, even the Rehnquist Court, the justices, a lot of, I think a majority of them saw their job as much uh, broader than that, as almost like they were statesmen. John, you'd better take a moment to describe what happened under FDR, because mm -hmm. on that account that you just gave, that's a critical moment in, in the history of the court. What oh, happened? Yeah, it's a, and, and we study in law school, and it still affects the court and its image of itself to this day. So until 1936, the Supreme Court actually blocked a lot of the, what's called the First New Deal, things like the Agricultural Adjustment Act, the the national recovery, these were they're almost fascist in the way you look at it now. These were laws that gave all the power to regulate the economy to these government boards, mm -hmm. which had a lot of private industrialists on it. And they regulated the prices, quantities of all goods in the country. And so the Supreme Court, I think correctly said, this is not within federal power and it's unconstitutional. It takes away natural rights. And 
the government can't organize itself to have private people exercise government. A lot, I think these were all correct. President Roosevelt attacked the court. He won an enormous majority in the 1936 elections, mm -hmm. two-thirds majority since in the House and Senate. And he said, hey, all those old justices, they're from the buggy and whip era. They don't know modern technologies and the national economy. So I'm going to expand the Supreme Court to 15 justices. Right. And he lost. He uh, went to Congress. Congress, even Democrats, actually, this is kind of what people say broke the New Deal coalition. Southern Democrats refused to go along. FDR actually went and campaigned against them in the primaries. I don't know if that reminds you of anybody we have around today. <laughs> <laughs> and, but all those senators and congressmen won. FDR lost. And FDR turned away from this project. But at the same time, the Supreme Court cracked. They flipped on all these issues and basically said, we will no longer limit regulation of the economy. We're no longer protecting economic rights. And we're going to, a few years later, they said, we're going to spend our attention on social rights and individual civil liberties and move away from your right to contract, your right to own property and things like that. So fundamental change. So that's what leads us to gay marriage, abortion being so the focus why, of the court. If that that happened. Hmm. That is a piece of American history. So if Justice Kennedy reasoned, I have my views of the Constitution, but we know that if this court prefers the original meaning of the Constitution to the politics of the hour, the authority of this court will be undermined, and Excellent. I have no choice but to look at the Constitution and at American politics. Mm -hmm. And Antonin Scalia and Justice Thomas get to be originalists because I'm a realist. I save the court time and time again. They get to get all the conservatives like John Yu excited and say, what purity. I'm the guy who is realistic enough to provide decisions that would stick. Yeah, I, I think you nailed it. This is a, what's the date and time? This is the first time this has ever happened. <laughs> I mean, you nailed it. I think precisely. Justice, if you try to understand... And it's, why, it's plausible. There's no, no. something to it, right? Yes, yes. If you, were, if you approach the job being of justice as a politician, right. and you were worried about your legitimacy, mm -hmm. and you're not... This is all the arguments FDR used against court. You're not elected. Why do you get to stand in the way of the American people? You, sh you should actually... The court should be in harmony with the American people. If you were a politician, you would think the way you just described, right? You would say, I've got to balance the court's right to be involved and to play its constitutional role, but always worried about what the political system is going to do in reaction to us. They might always take away our power. And so you would try to keep the court sort of in the middle of where right. the country's going. And I think that's what Justice Kennedy thought he was doing. Every now and then, say, on free speech, he might not have. But, you know, I, I, you could look at the polling, and I bet where he votes was pretty much where the middle of the, middle of the country was. I take gay marriage, for example, as a great example. President Obama campaigned against gay marriage, right, right in 2008. Right. Um, by the time Obergefell's decided, though, the polls had polls switched. switched. Right. And it's a generational thing, right? The poll, you know, we're never going back, I think, to the, the world before Obergefell because just demographically, young people support gay marriage in huge numbers. But if you're a Scalia, I think, or a Thomas, or an Alito or even a Roberts, you would say the framers of the Constitution did not think they were creating a national right to gay right. marriage at the time. But if you take that view, then you're 
right? In a way, you're saying we can over, but I don't think they were. I think in that case, they were actually saying it's up to Congress and the state legislatures. Right. You decide. You don't have to be popular. Why should we always look to the court to make these decisions for us? Right. So I think the negatives, downside of what you're talking about is you're right. You could balance the court's role, make sure it's harmonious to the American people. Guess who gets? Guess who, guess who comes out of that more powerful than anybody? The court, the court. and the justices. So the thing and about the justice who's a swing above exactly. All. And so right. the, the Thomas and Scalia view, I think, in a way, is a is a more humble view of what a judge's role is because it says we can't decide all these hard questions. You guys decide. Right. This brings us to Brett Kavanaugh, fifty three mm -hmm. years old, Yale College, Yale Law School. He's Yale Yale clerk for Justice Anthony Kennedy. Helped to draft the so-called Star Report on Bill Clinton, on the Bill Clinton scandal. Worked as a partner at Kirkland & Ellis, a big-time firm. Mm -hmm. Served as staff secretary to George W. Bush in the White House. Huge job. And <clears throat> has served since 2006 on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit, a court which is often called the second most important in the country. Does Judge Kavanaugh have your vote? Oh, yeah. And I okay. expect him to be confirmed by pretty much close to a party-line vote. Now, John, you grew up in Philadelphia. Uh, you're always talking about the Phillies and... The Eagles! Don't forget the, the Eagles. Eagles. The Eagles. Oh, for, that's right. The <laughs> Eagles. And cheesesteak. And you have... And here you are out here. In, there's a populist streak in you, John You, uh. Judge Kavanaugh, Ivy League, you're Harvard, Yale. You can't fault him for that. But he's mm -hmm. lived in Washington all his mm -hmm. life. Does that bother you? Is this is this, is he too much a product of a particular kind of elite, of a limited circle? Actually, I think the criticism is not just of Kavanaugh, but of all the justices on the Supreme Court. Now, they've, if you look at, at once Judge Kavanaugh joins the court, all the justices will have gone to Harvard and Yale. So I don't know how I didn't get on the court. <laughs> I mean, I went to both. I had my bets covered. <laughs> so they all it went to Harvard yet, and Yale. <clears throat> and so they all went to Harvard and Yale. They all were lower court judges, except for Elena Kagan, who was Solicitor General, but they all came up through this kind of professional training to be a Supreme Court justice. Think about the old grand days of the Supreme Court. You had former secretaries of state. You had, like Charles Evans Hughes, for, former presidential candidates, or William Howard William Taft, Taft former, had been president. Former president, a bad one, but a former president. Oh, you had governors, that's senators. That's a show, John. I'm going to stick up for bring, Taft. But, bring right, it on. I'm go ready. Ahead. I'm go ready. Ahead. No, you had, uh, so you had, you had more geographic representation of the country in the court. So we have what I would call, I call it technocratic court. It's a court of experts, technocrats. All they've ever been, all they've ever wanted to be are judges. It's very unusual in our history. It's been going, and actually, it's a it's a uh, Republican conservative approach because um, after the Warren Court, if you see the Warren Court as the court that really took all this power, pushed into all these social issues, that was a Supreme Court you know, Chief Justice Warren, former governor of California, appointed politician, by, nominated rather by Dwight Eisenhower. Yeah, right. So the I think the Nixon, but also this really came Reagan and Bush came forward, there's appoint judges who have a record, you know what they are, they're not gonna to be too activist and wild because they've been lower court judges and have accepted the norms of judging, not politics. I don't know if that came true. Justice Kennedy's a good example of how that didn't work. But, okay, that's, again, that's just, I was in the Reagan White House during those nominations and there was no Federalist Society. Yeah. You couldn't, there was no way of vetting judges in those days the way that, but this may be further to your point, that uh, 
Donald Trump turns to the Federalist Society and says, give me a list of good guys. And the people on that list are the kinds of people you've described because they're precisely the kinds of people whom you can track over 20 years and mm -hmm. see where they stand on the issues. That's something new. Oh, that, that's, again, something that came about in the 80s. As you say, the Federal Society created a kind of conservative alternative to what liberals have long had, which we call law schools, right. where you train them to be liberal activists. And so the Federal Society is sort of an alternative. But this, you mentioned Trump, and I think we shouldn't forget that Kavanaugh is interesting. Uh, you know, Trump outsourced the selection of Supreme Court justices. For the first time, no president has ever done this. And he's kept his word, right? He has said, I'm going to pick from this carefully vetted list of conservative judges that the Federal Society has really uh, vetted. Uh, that's, I think that's what swung a lot of conservatives on board the Trump campaign mm -hmm. during the primaries. And, you know, Trump you know, I don't agree with them a lot of stuff, free trade, foreign policy, some, uh, you know, there's some, a lot, actually domestic problem, okay, but he's really kept his word on judges probably more than in any other area of his administration. And Kavanaugh and Gorsuch are a product of that. All right. Let's go through, if, if we could, three or four uh, cases, or issues rather, not cases, but issues. And you tell me how you think a Justice Kavanaugh, if he's confirmed, would handle them. The Affordable Care Act, Obamacare. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, Democrat of New York, quote, we Democrats believe that the number one issue in America is health care. The nomination of Mr. Kavanaugh would put a dagger through the heart of this cherished belief, close quote. What do you think? So first of all, you know, Senator Schumer has, uh, when, it's been come, when it's come to what he's been saying about Kavanaugh, has a grasp on reality that rivals Michael Cohen right now. <laughs> <laughs> he is just like so blatantly misstating things and getting things wrong. I, 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 I think it's all deliberate though, because Schumer oh, is a smart he's guy. He's a highly intelligent man. First of all, the Supreme Court ultimately is not gonna rule on whether healthcare is a universal national right or not, that's up to Congress. When Kavanaugh was a lower court judge on the DC circuit, the Obamacare case actually came through their court before it got to the Supreme Court, whereas you remember, Chief Justice Roberts voted with the four liberals saved to uphold it. it. Yeah, saved it. I was very disappointed in Roberts on this. Um, Kavanaugh actually did not strike the law down on conservative grounds, such actually on the grounds that Justice Kennedy wanted to in the minority when it got to the Supreme Court. He actually tried to wiggle out of the case and say it wasn't ready for judicial review. And one thing he did say that uh, actually liberals should appreciate is that he said that, remember, the whole case focused in the end on whether the $795 people get charged for not signing up for Obamacare, is that a tax or a penalty? Conservatives said it's a penalty. And Everybody said it, it was a penalty. Obviously a penalty. But the Supreme, Chief Justice Roberts said, no, it's a tax. Therefore. And so it comes within Congress's almost unlimited taxing power. Right. Justice Kavanaugh agreed with him, actually. In the lower, it was Justice Ka Judge Kavanaugh who first said in the lower courts, actually that thing's a tax. And so liberal, Schumer and liberals should actually be applauding Kavanaugh. I think he's wrong. They should be applauding Kavanaugh for that, actually. He came out on their side in that case. Okay, gay marriage. You've already discussed this a little bit, but um, here's a case where, well, well, let me give you a couple, Wall Street Journal. We doubt the court will overturn gay marriage even with a new conservative justice, Chief Justice Roberts, will certainly not want the court to overturn the gay marriage case so soon after it was decided, lest it make the justices seem too political. Too soon to overturn it. 
On the other hand, here's what Chief Justice Roberts wrote in his dissent when Obergefell was decided. And incidentally, he did something. He'd been on the bench for a decade at that point. John Roberts did something he'd never done before. He read his dissent from the bench, which is something they do in that body to demonstrate genuine anger. I think that's fair to say. Quote, just who do we think we are? We are stealing this issue from the people, close quote. If he becomes, if Judge Kavanaugh becomes Justice Kavanaugh, where does he stand on Obergefell and mm -hmm. gay marriage generally? This is interesting because uh, it's a great point because liberals are, I think, going to all vote against Judge Kavanaugh in the Senate. They're attacking him with these exaggerated claims. I think they're making a big mistake because Kavanaugh has no views, as far as we can tell, on Obergefell, on, on gay marriage or abortion. He is a lower court judge in the D.C. Circuit. You call it the second most important court in the land, which I think is right. Those kinds of cases rarely come up. Mm. And so we don't have... Largely administrative law. Yeah, it's mostly government cases, cases right, up against right, the right. federal government, cases about the power of the agencies. That's right. their bread and butter. So we don't have any opinions, much like, guess who? Justice Kennedy, at the time he was confirmed, we had no idea what he thought about abortion, too. If I were the liberals, what I would do is vote overwhelmingly for Kavanaugh and wrap my gauzy arms around him and try to start persuading him about things like Obergefell or things like abortion. This is what works for them. It worked on Kennedy himself. It worked on Souter. It worked on Blackman. It worked on, you could go, there are a lot of Republican appointed justices who've gone to the Supreme Court without firm views on these matters. And you know, the conservative conspiracy theory is, oh, all the, the liberal press and the law schools and the bar, they start working on him. Uh, you know, my judge, Judge Silberman, who I clerked for, famously called it the greenhouse effect because Linda Greenhouse was the Supreme Court reporter for the New York Times. Yes. You do what they like, they get praise in all the popular media outlets. And so being in Washington has an effect of sort of slowly dragging you over to the liberal side. So Kavanaugh could be a justice like a Kennedy. Uh, some behind the scenes gossip, it was, you know, I think widely known that Justice Kennedy loves Kavanaugh. He's one of his favorite clerks. And I think because he's kind of like him. Kennedy, you know, I think the gossip was that Kennedy, when he uh, resigned, you know, announced his retirement, went to see President Trump and might have mentioned Kavanaugh as someone that he ought to think about appointing. There's also this gossip that Trump, was, the White House was trying to send out signals that they probably would appoint Kennedy, a Kavanaugh, in order to get Kennedy to retire at this point. So putting that all together, I would say I would be shocked if Kavanaugh in his first few years as a justice were to vote to overrule the very cases that his former boss, his mentor, the person he's replacing, those are his most important, those are the things people remember him for, mm -hmm. gay marriage, abortion. I would be shocked to see Kavanaugh vote early in his career to overthrow those very cases. If it's Kennedy's the reason you could say he's on the, would be on the Supreme Court. Abortion, again, the Wall Street Journal. As for Roe versus Wade, the abortion case was a legal travesty, Roe, the 73 decision. As Judge Bork famously put it, the decision in Roe versus Wade contains not a single sentence of legal reasoning. <laughs> was a legal travesty and should be overturned, but the court has upheld its course so many times that the Chief Justice and perhaps even the other conservatives aren't likely to overrule stare decisis, that is the notion of a binding precedent, on a five to four vote, close quote. By the way, does it strike... <laughs> on the one hand, the journal, this is all from one ed editorial, on the mm -hmm. one hand, the journal says, eh, 
can't overrule Obergefell because it's too recent. Hmm. And then a paragraph later says, by the way, we also can't overrule Roe versus Wade because it's, you know, it's too old. <laughs> uh, we'll come to stare decisis in a moment. But so yeah. Kennedy's not on the court during Roe, but he, he writes the decision in Casey where they had, there was an expectation that the court might actually overturn Roe in 1992. Hmm. So your argument on, with Kavanaugh, as with Obergefell, so with abortion in general. I think so. That that's so closely associated with Kennedy. I, I agree. The, I think so. Right. And I think what would happen actually is that uh, what you'll see is states will try to limit abortion, regulate it more and more tightly, but you're not going to see a state try to outright ban abortion again. And so uh, you'll see this. You know, so you'll see laws like the partial birth abortion ban, which Kennedy voted to uphold. You know, which prohibited certain kinds of abortion uh, late in uh, pregnancy. And so you're going to see efforts to regulate those kinds of aspects of abortion. And I expect Kavanaugh, like Kennedy, would vote to uphold that right to regulation. But I bet states uh, would, uh, unless they're really, really stupid, <laughs> states should not try to ban abortion for a number of years until you have this more incrementalist or gradualist approach. And again, it's because you don't know what Kavanaugh thinks about abortion, has no opinions uh, about it, has never written or said anything significant about it. All right. Um, one more of these special topics, Judge Kavanaugh and Donald Trump. Another quotation from your favorite Democratic senator from New York, Chuck Schumer, it is unseemly for the president of the United States to be picking a Supreme Court justice who could soon be effectively a juror involving a case in a case involving the president himself, close quote. And by the way, Schumer makes that point in public a few days ago now as we may record this program. And a number of Democratic senators have canceled their meetings with Judge Kavanaugh. We're not, we shouldn't even be hearing these, we should not even be holding hearings on this nomination. They're, they're doing Kavanaugh a favor. <laughs> so what about that? How painful it have to be to sit through those meetings? What about that as an argument? So it's, it's Trump actually kind of unclear what Schumer's talking about. So it's unclear what he's talking about. Does he mean that Kavanaugh would somehow be a juror in Trump's impeachment trial? I hope not, because that's completely that, wrong. Because right. right, the chief justice would sit as the trial judge. The senators are the jurors. It's just that doesn't make any sense. Okay. So maybe Schumer's trying to make a, a, I don't know, a different kind of point, which is a number do, do of what, issues. Do what John Roberts did in Obamacare. Try to construct this in a way that makes it sensible. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> uh, don't get me started on that one. <laughs> so, I, I think what Schumer, maybe Schumer is saying, and maybe other Democratic senators are saying, oh, there, and this is an argument that's been coming out just in the last few days, oh, there's something illegitimate about Trump being able to pick Kavanaugh because Trump's under investigation. There may be so some legal, these issues some might case come up that goes to the Supreme Court. Uh, yeah. Right, okay. So one is that's very just hypocritical because did anyone say that about Clinton? You know, Clinton's under investigation during Whitewater. He appoints, uh, he appoints Steve Breyer to the court while he's under investigation in Whitewater. He, made, he appointed um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg when all that's starting to come out. Do we say Breyer and Ginsburg are somehow no, illegitimate, illegitimate justices? Right. It's ridiculous. Because if he took that argument seriously, then every presidential act is illegitimate right? because Trump's under investigation. I don't remember any Democrats taking that view during the, the Whitewater investigations. Plus, right, let the investigations, you know, my point of view on this uh, is let the investigations continue, let Mueller do his job, let it come to an end. But the president is the president 
until he's removed from office by impeachment. His actions are all legitimate under the Constitution. Got it. All right. A couple of big ones. First, the whole concept of the living Constitution. We've touched on it. Mm. Two quotations. The late Justice Antonin Scalia, quote, the Constitution that I interpret and apply is not living but dead, <laughs> or as I prefer to call it, enduring. It means today not what the current society, much less the court, thinks it ought to mean, but what it meant when it was adopted. Close quote. Justice Stephen Breyer, the court should reject approaches to interpreting the Constitution that consider the document's scope and application as fixed at the moment of framing. Actually, Justice Scalia says fixed at the moment of adoption, not framing, but yeah. close enough. Rather, the court should regard the Constitution as containing unwavering values that must be applied flexibly to ever-changing circumstances. Close quote. Where does Brett Kavanaugh come down? Oh, I think Brett, in the, in the cases where he's written opinions, he comes down more on the Scalia side. And more on the yeah, Scalia side. The Scalia so there's side. some ambiguity there? Well, so he, I wouldn't say he's a scholar of the original understanding of the Constitution. But the, the, the opinions actually, which point what he would do as a justice and where his main thrust would be, and it's actually quite consistent with Gorsuch and, and the other conservative justices, is what he really wants to do is const, uh, constrain the administrative state. He's really attacked the roots of the constitutional doctrines that have given us this big welfare state, this sort of unaccountable, ever-growing federal regulatory agencies, uh, who uh, you know do things like regulate ponds that appear in your backyard as federal as waters of the United States and things like this? Um, when he, in those opinions, which he really seems to care about, he does then goes back and he looks at the original the text of the Constitution. What did the framers think? What was the structure? His opinions in those areas look very much like Scalia's opinions in those areas, and he cites and relies on Scalia's fundamental opinions about the nature of the executive power and prosecution and so on. But he's had such a limited range mm. of cases. We don't really know a lot about how he would approach the cases where I think Kennedy ran wild, you know, these social issues. Right. What does a due process clause mean? What, what does equality mean? We really don't have a, I, I, don't, I think it's fair to say we don't really have a clue what Kavanaugh thinks about. The, those are where you would not be an originalist. That's okay. where the temptation is the strongest to, to leave the, res, the, the originalist reservation. Okay, on to, on to the second big issue. So. We've established that you're, in the cases he had on which he has opinions, he's an originalist. He's he, yeah, he's, he he's does very the close. historical research. Got it. Okay. So the question. All right. Now, even among originalists, there is a big debate over stare decisis, yeah. which is the question, the notion that precedent is binding. Once again, the late Justice Antonin Scalia says something about it that I'm still quoting. Antonin Scalia will be quoted for centuries. It's like enjoying a fine bottle of wine. You just open it, <laughs> smell it, appreciate it. That's what his opinions are like. Now, here, Antonin Scalia is distinguishing his view of stare decisis from that of Justice Thomas. Whom I clerked for. For whom you clerked. Yeah. And Justice Thomas and Antonin Scalia, you'd know more about this than I, but they're friends. They hold each other in high intellectual mm -hmm. and personal regard, and they are both originalists. But they differed on stare decisis, yes. quote, I don't want to say that Brother Clarence doesn't believe in stare decisis, but he doesn't much believe in stare decisis. He is willing to go back and get it right, even if we've gotten it wrong for a long, long time. 
I am, says Justice Scalia, on the other hand, inclined to acknowledge that any legal philosophy, whatever it is, has, has to make an exception for stare decisis. You cannot reinvent the wheel. So, for example, most of the decisions that have been made erroneously under the Equal Protection Clause or the Eighth Amendment or whatnot, I'm willing to say it's water over the dam. Where's Brett Kavanaugh going to come down on that? Ah, so that's a great question. So I, I tend, in terms of what the right answer is, I tend to side with Justice Thomas. And I, I think it's better, I mean, the court's job is to get it right. And I think that's affected very much by his view of segregation. You know, Plessy versus Ferguson was wrong. The courts kept to it as stare decisis until the 1950s. So if you, you know, I can't, I, Justice Thomas, I think, and I think he's right on this, is the court should not stick to a Plessy versus Ferguson and have to wait all the way to Brown versus Board of Education in the 1950s to go back to the original true meaning of the Constitution, which is that the government cannot make distinctions on people, on citizens, race, and skin color. Uh, I don't know what a stare decisive person would say in that period between Plessy versus Ferguson and Brown versus Board of Education, which is a 60-year period. Is that... I, I think that's a fundamental challenge to people who believe in precedent. Here's so, the closest I ever got to asking Antonin Scalia about that. I never, wish I thought... No one ever really got to ask him questions. You were just a prop for him to well, give his... <laughs> well, give uh, which, this, is, this is about to make your point. This is about to make your point. Because I, I found his position on stare decisis unsatisfying, yeah. intellectually unsatisfying. And I quoted G.K. Chesterton to him. Here's the quotation. It is the job of liberals to keep on making mistakes, and it is the job of conservatives to keep them from being corrected. <laughs> that's, 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 a good, that's pretty good. And he laughed. Yeah. But that's all he did. <laughs> okay, no, so... Because stare decisis doesn't really matter unless it makes you keep to a mistaken precedent. If the precedent's correct, then you come out that, to the same outcome. Right. <laughs> anyway, so I, I bet Kavanaugh... Again, it goes to our discussion about what do we do with gay marriage? What is he going to do with abortion? I think on the issues that were really important to Kennedy and a part of his legacy, I could see, I could see Kavanaugh sticking uh, to precedent. But he's been trying, again, in this area of the administrative state where he's really been trying to overthrow a lot of the things that have allowed this you know, monstrously large welfare state to grow out of control. He's been trying to extend precedent in new and unusual ways to try to chip away at its foundations. So, uh, you know, to give you an example, you were in the Reagan White House. You remember the independent counsel investigation into Iran-Contra. And there was a huge case called Morrison versus Olson, mm -hmm. which called on the court to strike down the independent counsel because it wasn't directly under presidential control. The Constitution gives the president only in the Constitution the job of supervising all law enforcement and all federal law enforcement. That's Scalia's finest moment. The Supreme Court, all of them vote to uphold the law, I think, because of political pressure Eight to at one. the time. Eight to one. And I think it's seven to one. Oh, seven to yeah, one, sorry. And okay. uh, Scalia is the lone dissenter, which is when he was the happiest. Everyone agrees Scalia was right by now, right? The Congress, in the end, doesn't renew the law. Everyone realizes the defects of letting a prosecutor run wild without any check on budget, personnel, or jurisdiction. Does this sound familiar to anybody nowadays? Anyway, so... Kavanaugh took Scalia's dissent, and he used it to strike down uh, the Consumer Finance Protection Board, that, uh, you know, Elizabeth Warren's oh, monstrous body that has the right to regulate every mortgage, credit card, because that person, Kavanaugh said, is protected from presidential removal, but it's one person, 
And that person controls huge swaths of the American economy. So in a way, Kavanaugh took what I think was the right original position, but it was the losing position in the independent council. And he's actually been resuscitating it and using it to attack these different parts of administrative state. So that should give originalists some hope. And, you know, because if he was bound by, if he was really faithfully applying stare decisis, he should not be striking down all those agencies, right? Because mm -hmm. Morrison versus Olson said, right, you can even have an independent prosecutor who's outside presidential control if Congress wanted. So I think, I think on those areas that he cares the most about, he's not going to follow stare decisis. He'll be more like a Thomas or more like Gorsuch has also been like this on the court. So far, Gorsuch has been voting a, a very high rate with, with Thomas and less so with Roberts. And he, so he also, so maybe we're going to say, what does a Trump court look like? What are Trump justices like? They're very suspicious of federal power. They're very suspicious of the administrative state. They want to return power back to local government. And they seem not to be so swayed by stare decisis so far. That'll so be Trump's legacy. toward Clarence Thomas. All right. Uh, this is hard because you know Brett Kavanaugh, but give him a grade. I asked you to grade. I asked <laughs> well, I've you known to him justice. for a long time. I thought you were going to ask me all these personal questions about him. Like one thing, you know. Uh, what kind of cologne does he use? <laughs> I'm sure it's Dracar Noir. No. Um, <laughs> it's a joke. So I... You know, so we were in law school together. I actually, uh, when he graduated, I took over his apartment. So I know what's under Brett's bed, and I know what's in his closets. And I can tell you nothing. He's been running for the Supreme Court since he's been 25 years old. Spotless. Um, I, would, I would say uh, Kavanaugh is a kind of person I actually think is well-suited to be on the court. He's not... Uh, He's not revolutionary, you know, he's not some kind of, he's not going to be like an Earl Warren and try to overturn right. everything, but he's going to be more again like a, a, a more, so in some ways Scalia's kind of was like that, right? Scalia was kind of a revolutionary mm. on the court, although you would not have predicted it when he was upon. And I think Thomas is more of a revolutionary even than Scalia is, but by being a revolutionary, they can't get votes. They could, they, right. they could not get a majority of the court to go with them. I think Kavanaugh is going to be in between. He's not going to be like a Kennedy, but he's not going to be a revolutionary calling for overturning of large amounts of doctrine and uh, precedent. So I think he's going to be closer to a Kennedy. He's going to be closer to a precedent base. So I would probably say uh, B plus. So let me just say, you know, this is You're a hard grade. Yeah, I'm a hard grade. Well, I'm giving him a Berkeley grade or Stanford grade. So it's inflated. So, you know, I, I just would say, you know, Yale, we were all friends together because there were only six Did or seven. Did you have grades at Yale? No, of course not. <laughs> there are only six or seven conservatives at Yale, so we would right. have lunch together. So I look back on those days now. So one is now the FBI director. One is now the Secretary Ray. of Health and James, James Ray was at Yale Law? Chris Ray. Chris yeah. Ray, thank you. Yeah, okay. and then the Health, Secretary of Health and Human Services, Alex Azar. He was oh, one was of them. He at Yale Law? And right. then Brett Kavanaugh is going to be on the Supreme Court. And then me, why did I get screwed? I'm teaching law at Berkeley. What, why, why wasn't I good John, enough? You have, the, you have the nicest life of anyone. Okay. I know they're all working much harder for me for much less than me, for far less pay. So maybe I won. A uh, couple last questions here. Mm -hmm. Where is this going? Let's stipulate that Judge Kavanaugh becomes Justice Kavanaugh, that he, does, that he is confirmed to the Supreme Court. And the court has the most conservative court that it has had in eight decades. And I'll tell you one more Scalia story. I was in a room in which just a few months after he was elected to the Senate, 
Senator Ted Cruz of Texas stood and started talking about the need to roll back New Deal jurisprudence to get back to exactly the era you're talking about, the era before the New Deal. And while Senator Cruz was speaking, Justice Scalia, who was seated about 10 feet away, started singing, beautiful dreamer. <laughs> Everybody broke up, Ted Cruz sat down. So who's right? Do we have a genuine prospect of rolling back, however, at whatever speed, yeah. of rolling back even New Deal legislation, or is that just a beautiful dream, but a dream? No, no, I, th I think that's actually going to be the Trump legacy for the Supreme Court. Is that's that, a huge it's legacy. It's a huge legacy. It'll be a, a big impact. It's uh, conservatives swinging for the fences, as it were, but it's not going to happen all at once. But you're going to see, I think, first things like the Consumer for Protection Board, things there's this federal agency that oversees all the accountants, parts of Obamacare. You're going to see the most extreme, uh, the Environmental Protection Agency extending its powers over backyards. You're going to see, I think, the outer limits of the executive branch and these agencies start to get pulled back. Another area you're going to see is, and Kavanaugh's written about this, Gorsuch wrote about this, Thomas wrote about this, you're going to see an end to judicial deference to what the agencies do. So when Congress gives power to the agencies, they use very vague language. And so the courts, and this was Scalia actually believed in this, the courts would defer to the agencies in their interpretation of their powers and how they use them. Unless the law was clearly against it, they wouldn't stop the agencies. Kavanaugh has said clearly he doesn't believe in this. Gorsuch doesn't believe in this. Thomas and Alito don't believe in this. So you're going to, this will be the effect. The only limiting factor on this is going to be Chief Justice Roberts. Because this is, because he wouldn't go with the other conservatives on Obamacare, he worries about, are we going too fast? Are what we do, or is what we're doing going to cause a political backlash? What are the other branches of government going to say? What are the American people going to say? Maybe the Chief Justice has to think that way. Was, I was going to ask, would John Roberts have been a better justice if he'd been an associate justice oh, yeah. and not chief? I, I think so. I mean, I, 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 I think many people, conservatives, think that. I think he's become... He feels an institutional obligation. Yes, like take Obamacare. The right answer was that Obamacare was unconstitutional. Actually, they struck down four out of the five issues, and they only upheld it on this one tax. And the gossip is, the rumor is, it came out in the press that Roberts originally voted to strike down Obamacare to be the fifth vote. And then Senator Leahy started attacking the court. The president started, this is incredible, it was unprecedented. The president of the United States was attacking the court before the decision even came out. Chief Justice Roberts changed his vote and on implausible grounds upheld uh, Obamacare. So because of that, if, and that's the greatest expansion of regulatory power in the history of the country over any, I mean, it took over one-eighth of the, one-sixth of the economy. Mm -hmm. So if Roberts isn't gonna go along with that, that was the moment to really rein in the Ministry of State. He's gonna be the one who's gonna be the gradualist. He will only, I think, take this project as far as he thinks the, the uh, American people or public opinion or the other branches are going to allow it, which is unfortunate because I think that brings us back to what you started with. The judge's job should just be, what does the Constitution say? How was it originally understood? How is it applying the case? I wish they would not think about all these other considerations about what's the president think, what's Congress think, what do the polls show? I think that's the trap Kennedy fell in and I think that's the trap Chief Justice Roberts has fallen into. Right, so you've mentioned two last questions. Mm -hmm. You may 
dislike, you may dislike them both, but I'm, you mentioned the Trump legacy and you also mentioned that two of the remaining, of the four remaining liberal justices <clears throat> are both in their 80s. Yeah. I know that in politics, a week is a long time. Is Donald Trump around for a period of months? Does he finish his first term? Or do you think it's more likely than not that he'll be around for another six years? He'll get a second term and that he'll get two more appointments to the Supreme Court. Well, I can tell you the constitutional answer, the politics answer, whether he's going to get reelected. That's all up to you, Peter. Uh, but oh, I'll bet John, you, I will John. bet you a hoagie or a cheesesteak oh, on John. the outcome just for all fun. right. Oh, it, we'll, 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 deci we'll decide who's, which side we take later with, with cheese with, with cheese whiz, not any, <laughs> not any of your effete New Hampshire Swiss cheese. You and John Kerry putting Swiss cheese on the wrong sandwich in Philly. So, constitutionally, he's going to finish out his term. So, one, if the Mueller investigation say it keeps going, or suppose this Michael Cohen investigation in New York yield proof that President Trump, I think the worst case scenario is either co-conspired with this, this Cohen fellow, this you know, sordid bag man paying off you know, hush money. Suppose he co-conspired to violate the campaign laws. Or suppose Mueller concludes that Trump doesn't seem like there's any evidence he conspired with the Russians, but he obstructed justice by firing uh, Comey, which I, I don't think is Constitutionally, that's yeah, that's I extremely don't think dubious. But all right, go yeah, ahead. Yeah, I, I agree with you. But suppose they, both those investigations yield recommendations the president should be prosecuted. The Constitution, I think, is pretty clear that the president cannot be prosecuted in office unless he's been removed by impeachment. You have to impeach and remove someone first. Only then can you prosecute a president. So there's no way that these criminal investigations could remove President Trump from office before 2020. So the only way it could happen would be through impeachment. And we have seen already constitutionally how difficult it is to impeach. Is what President Trump has done a high crime and misdemeanor within the terms of the Constitution? I doubt the actual, what he's been doing with Cohen actually rises to a high crime and misdemeanor. And I don't think that firing Comey is a high crime misdemeanor because he's within his constitutional rights to remove the FBI director. But you would have to have a trial in the Senate. First, you'd have to have majority members of the House vote to impeach, and then you would have a trial in the Senate, and you would need two-thirds to convict. I don't see the votes there. So I think President How many Trump, times has the Senate convicted a president in American history? I think it's zero. <laughs> but one vote, came within one vote of President Andrew Johnson. Johnson. Right, yeah. right. So I don't, I, he definitely finishes out his term. He may get one more vote, uh, one more seat on the Supreme Court than if Justice Ginsburg, uh, you know, is not in the best of health and is quite elderly, you know, doesn't make it to 2020. And then you're the expert on the re-election. I mean, who are the Democrats going to put up to beat Trump? You've got a growing, I mean, you've got an economy that's killing it. And most of the, my political science colleagues, if you were to put them under oath, they would say they believe that presidential election outcomes are really dictated by economic growth, how the economy's doing, uh, more than any other issue. The economy keeps going at 4%, and the Democrats put up Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, uh, you know, can you imagine what a great debate that would be? I mean, that President Trump's going to keep is going to use the word Pocahontas thirty times in one presidential debate. It'll be an all-time record. So I, I could easily see him getting reelected too, just because the Democrats aren't going to put up a moderate. So then, I would think if you were a Democrat and you love the Supreme Court and they care about it more actually than conservatives do, that's a defining issue for the reelection for them. Because I do think Trump will get two more seats if he wins reelection. Right. So you think there's a good prospect that this 
Trump legacy on the Supreme Court will come to pass, mm. and you're delighted by that. You I, I, yeah. I, again, I know you well enough to know you have all kinds of reservations about Donald Trump, but on that point, you're a happy man. Yeah, he's okay. kept his word on appointments, and the people he's putting on the court are people who are trying to rewrite the constitutional balance back to the original understanding. Right. Which brings us to the last question. Your friend, Brett Kavanaugh, Republicans hold a majority over Democrats in the Senate of just 50, excuse me, now that John McCain has died, it is 50 to 49 with one seat unfilled. We don't know how quickly the governor of Arizona will name a replacement for Senator McCain, but let's suppose it happens fast. So it'll be 51 Republicans to 49 Democrats. Call it. What's the vote? So I bet it'll be 54 plus whatever that is to make 100. <laughs> okay. Because all the Republicans, all, all the Republicans, Republicans hold the and line. I bet maybe you one or up two, two or three Democrats who are in Trump states who are running for re-election. So that's, you know, Manchin or Donnelly or someone like that, or even, uh, you know, Nelson in Florida or High Camp in wherever up North, Dakota, North Dakota, whatever she's, she's that part of the, the country right is. Right. You know, but. One of those, if, if, if one of those, if those senators vote against Kavanaugh, they're handing off an enormous issue to beat the hell out of them in the, in the senatorial election. So I think Kavanaugh actually picks up two or three votes. The sad thing is that up until about 10 years ago, Kavanaugh should have gotten an overwhelming majority because it's only been very recently really uh, Gorsuch and, uh, you know, actually it's really Gorsuch, but maybe a little bit of Alito, maybe Roberts where uh, senators are voting by party line on right. the Supreme Court and confirmations. Right. That really never happened before. Right. John Yu, professor of law at Bolt Hall at Cal Berkeley and visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution and Eagles fan. Two Super Bowls in a row. You, you heard it here first. I paid up. I paid up <laughs> that last bet. Thank you, John. I'm Peter Robinson for Uncommon Knowledge and the Hoover Institution. Thank you.